I want to bring to you a message that's entitled, A Real and Veritable Faith. A Real and Veritable Faith. We're constantly bombarded by people who disagree with us. There are people who make fun of us. They persecute us. They tell us that what we believe is a myth, that we just believe in superstition and legend. I'm here this morning to tell you that's not true. There is a reason that we believe what we believe. There's truth in it. I want to quote to you from a man by the name of Russell R. Byram. He was a noted theologian and author in the Church of God. And he wrote these words. He said, we have reason for believing the truth. Error shrinks from the light. And we know what the light is. Jesus is the life, and the life was the light that shed light into the darkness of the world. But truth fearlessly welcomes the light. Christianity has always invited investigation of its claims. It asks of us no blind faith. It can produce evidence of the truthfulness of all that it affirms. Skeptics often base their arguments on unproved assumptions, but Christianity has no need of assuming anything. And just to give you an example of that, and believe me, there's going to be some things in this message that I'm going to talk about that I'm not qualified to talk about. (laughs) But I'm going to try to share some of it anyway. But just the method of carbon dating, that is practiced so evenly by everybody today. Yes, it's a process that has method. It's a process that seems to be okay. But remember this, it's based on a scale. And scales have to be calibrated. And I would suggest to you this morning that maybe their scale is wrong. Because I don't know about you, but I do not believe that we, this earth, and everything that we know in our universe has been here for millions and millions and billions of years. I don't accept it. I don't believe it. Skeptics often base their arguments on unproved assumptions. But Christianity has no need of assuming anything. Like true science. And by the way, true science is just simply going where the facts lead. Like all true science, Christianity needs no other support than that of known facts. Skepticism, then, must be the result of either ignorance of the evidences or an unwillingness to believe and accept the facts about Christianity. I remember a number of years ago I was teaching a class here and we were using a a series written by Ken Ham, who, by the way, is the one who started the Creation Museum and the Ark, where you're going to be going this week. And uh, in that, he quoted one of the scientists. I think I remember his name, but I won't mention it. But I remember the quote of this man. When confronted with the idea of the fact that evolution has many, many flaws in it, this is what this man said. He said, I would rather believe in a lie than to concede that there is a God. That's the blatant attitude that many people have towards this thing that we believe in. Skepticism must be the result of either ignorance of the evidences or an unwillingness to believe and accept the facts of Christianity. This morning I want to point us to the first scripture Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke was the author of one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke was a contemporary of Paul the Apostle and many other people who actually knew the disciples. And the thing about Luke is he was also a physician, he was a scientist, he was a scholar, and he was also a historian. So what Luke tells us 
ought to be pretty credible. And so in these first four verses of Luke, this is not a passage of Scripture that you would go out and memorize. But let's read it together. Is it, is it on the screen? Luke 1, 1 through 4. Okay, that's all right. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 1, 1 to 4. But listen to the words of Luke. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. And I want to especially emphasize those words. I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. This from a scientist, a physician. And he said, I write an orderly account for you. So we can take Luke's word as being significant and very credible. Luke also is responsible for writing the book of the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament. And if you combine the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, fully 27% of the entire text of the New Testament was written by Luke. I don't know how many people realize that because we, we tend to think about Paul the Apostle because he wrote so many of the books of the New Testament. He, he wrote the majority of them. But what Luke has written and given to us compiles 27% of the entire text of the New Testament. And here's the other thing. Luke composed this thing just within a generation or two of the time of Jesus and his disciples. He didn't come along 500 years later and write this. He's writing it out of personal experience and testimony. He even said that he had access to eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. That's a remarkable thing. So the bottom line is Luke was an extremely credible source. Well, what is it that we believe? Genesis says, in the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. God created you and me. It says that he formed man out of the dust of the earth. And he breathed into him the breath of life. And man became a living soul. He said that we were created in the image of God. Sadly, we have lost our way. The prophet Isaiah later wrote and said, All we like sheep have gone astray, and everyone gone his own way. So here's what we believe. We believe that we are a lost people. We need a Savior. Jesus was that Savior who came, the Son of God. He took our sins upon himself. He was crucified, he was buried, and he was risen. He rose again, and he's a living Savior. That's what we believe this morning. And what I'm going to try to do is to give you a little bit of evidence of that, however poorly and weak that is. So let's look at another one of Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. Pay particularly attention to verses 3 and 4, because I want to come back to that. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, 
most of whom are still living, now this is Paul speaking, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, to all of the apostles, and last of all, Paul says, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Well, if you want to know what he's talking about, look at Acts, the ninth chapter, and you can read about the conversion of Saul to Paul. Jesus confronted him on his way to persecute Christians. And Jesus knocked him off of his horse and blinded him and said, Saul, why do you persecute me? <laughs> Saul said, who are you? And he said, I am Jesus that you persecute. And we know the rest of the story, as they say. Paul spent much time preparing himself and then going out and becoming one of the greatest, if not the greatest, preachers and missionaries of all time. I want you to look at verses 3 and 4 very quickly one more time. And the reason I want you to look at it is because it says, in verse 3 it says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Well, now wait a minute. Paul hadn't written this yet. Luke's Gospel hadn't been written yet. So what's he talking about? Well, I'll tell you what he's talking about. If you go to Isaiah, in the Old Testament, written over 500 years before this, and Paul had access to that. He was a, an educated Jew, and he had access to those scriptures. And if you go to Isaiah chapter 53, in verse 5, it says, He was pierced through for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. That validates that Christ died for our sins. And then looking at verses 8 through 10, it says, He was cut off out of the land of the living. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And he shall prolong his days. That scripture affirms that Christ was killed, didn't die a natural death, that he was buried in a sepulcher intended for a rich man and guarded by soldiers. And after death, his days were to be prolonged or to continue, which is a clear prediction of his resurrection from the dead. This is what we believe, and this is what we believe is true. Jesus came, Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised again Amen. to life. Amen. And because Jesus conquered sin, the devil, and now he's even conquered death, we too have the promise of living forever. Amen. That is the truth about what we believe this morning. I have to tell you that as I was studying this message, I told mom this this morning coming in, I've practiced to myself I don't know how many times, and it came out differently every time. <laughs> and no doubt that this is different again this morning. But this morning, I want to present to you five evidences of the truth of what we believe. Now that we know what the truth is that we believe, I want to present to you five evidences. And those five evidences are not all exhaustive. There are other evidences as well. And as I said earlier, I may not be the best qualified person to share all of this with you, but I'll do the best I can. But the first evidence of what we believe that it is true, and this is kind of hidden, but the first evidence is simply the importance and the significance about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in and of itself is an evidence. It cannot be over-exaggerated. You see, as witnesses, and that's what we are, because we are to pass on what others have passed on to us, just like Paul wrote in his scripture. We are to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. And by doing so, raising the good of all of society and all of the world. Have you ever stopped to consider what if Jesus hadn't come? Think about that. Let that sink in for a minute. What if Jesus never came? 
But instead, we are to be witnesses and to help to raise the good in society. Jesus, on the Sermon in the Mount, said this. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. And he even went further than that. He said that that light needs to be put on a candlestick, on a hill, and not hidden under a basket. In John, the very first chapter, where it talks about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, in verse 5 it says that in Him was life, and that life was the light of the world. And that light of the world came into the darkness and exposed the darkness for what it was. Let me tell you something, that is significant. And because of that significance, we can believe what we believe to be true. Knowing the gospel is like the merchant who went out and found the pearl of great price. Another parable that Jesus told, he said, when he found that pearl of great price, what did he do? He went back and sold everything that he had so that he could accumulate enough money to buy it. That's how important and how significant our faith and our beliefs should be. Another thing about our significant, the significance and importance about what we believe is our eternal welfare. Where are we going? Where are we headed? What's the future? Our future would be pretty bleak if we didn't have the promise that Jesus gave. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. Hallelujah. It's important to know the truth of what we believe for that reason. That we can have confidence in knowing that we will live forever. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me shall live and not die. Sadly, another scripture, you know, we all know the scripture, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Two verses later, he says this. He who believes is not condemned. In other words, he has a future in heaven. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he does not believe. There's significance and importance to what we believe. And that in itself, I believe, is an evidence to the truth. Even the most devout Christian should be familiar with the evidences of that truth that he so unquestioningly accepts and be able to give a reason for his belief. 1 Peter 3.15 says... Be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And going back to Byram again, another quote, Christianity promises knowledge of truth only to those who desire to believe it. You see, it's nonsense to the non-believer. But to we that believe, it's much, much more. Well, that's one evidence. There's another evidence that I want to bring to you this morning, and that is the creation record. Here's where I get a little bit uncomfortable. I was a pretty good student in school, but I never really went very far in the study of the sciences. We live in a society today that can't decide whether the world and the universe was created by someone who designed it, or whether it was just some unbelievable act of chance that there was this massive explosion in the cosmos and everything came into being. 
Where did the matter come from? It cannot be explained. You can't make something out of nothing. My grandfather used to say that a person who believed that had more faith than I do. But we're living in a time where we have that, and because of that, there are a lot of other ways that science has gone a direction that I believe to be wrong and false. One of those is evolution. We'll talk about that in a moment. But just to give you an example of the creation record, let's look at the Earth. The Earth is the third planet in our solar system that revolves around the sun. I believe there are eight. When I was in school, it was nine. But I think Pluto is gone now. But what makes the Earth special? Or maybe, maybe, maybe you don't realize how special the Earth is. No one has ever been able to convincingly argue that there is life anywhere else in the universe let alone in our solar system. Life is limited, as we know it, to our Earth. What makes the Earth so special? Well, let me share a couple things. First of all, the Earth's size. Did you know that if the Earth were just 10% larger, life couldn't be sustained because the sun would burn us up? If the Earth was 10% smaller, we would be too far away from the sun and we would become an ice cube. Life couldn't be sustained. Do you know that Earth's orbit around the sun, here's the sun, the Earth orbit, it's not totally circular, but it's elliptical. And the reason that it's elliptical is, is so that in some parts of what we know as a year, the Earth is warmer, in some parts it's colder. Thus, the season the winter, and the spring, and the summer, and the fall. And while the earth is orbiting around the sun, it's also spinning. And for the very same reason, so that there's only so much of a dosage of the sun at one time. And of course, the spinning motion is what determines our days and our nights. There's this thing called gravity. You know what that is? You dare me? <laughs> you know, we think of gravity as being something that makes things fall to the ground. But think of it in a bigger context, and that is that the earth is a ball, right? And if it wasn't for gravity, what would we do? We would fall off. And not only gravity in our earth's atmosphere, but gravity in the whole solar system. It's gravity that helps to keep the planets and the stars and the moon in place. We have the moon in our earth, and the moon does so many things that many of them I can't even explain. One of the things we associate with the moon, of course, is the coming in and the going out of the ocean's tides. And by doing so, it refreshes the life in the oceans, and it, and it is a cooling effect for the atmosphere. There's an ozone layer around the earth, and that layer is what protects us from the dangerous radiation of the sun. You want to talk about sunscreen? Get some ozone. <laughs> there are air currents in our atmosphere that refresh things, have a cooling effect. Life can't be sustained without oxygen. We breathe the air, and the air has 21% oxygen in it. If oxygen would go down to the level of just 15% in our air that we breathe, you and I would suffocate. Wouldn't be enough. Well, I could go on and on, I guess. And again, I'm, I'm not the total expert on all this. If you are uh, brave enough, let me say, and you would like to read more about the perfect earth, 
I recommend to you a book entitled The Privileged Planet. The Privileged Planet. Written by two PhDs, one Guillermo Gonzalez and J. Wesley Richards. And just a side note, a few years ago, I had the privilege of going to Knoxville, Tennessee with my two sons. And we attended a conference there that was hosted by Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel is the author of the book, The Case for Christ. And uh, in that conference, there were many different sessions. And one of those sessions, I'm sure, was these authors because I still remember it to this day. They talked about the perfect earth. And if any little thing changed, how life as we know it wouldn't be sustainable. And the other thing is, our solar system is so predictable that, as you know, eclipses are predicted hundreds of years ahead. That's how predictable it all is. So a perfect earth is just one simple illustration of God's marvelous creation. Now, I said something to you earlier about evolution, and that is the, the idea that man didn't start out as a man. And I'm here to tell you this morning with all conviction, my great-great-great-grandfather to the nth degree was not a chimpanzee. <laughs> and his great-great-grandfather before him was not a slug. And his great-great-great-grandfather to the nth degree before him was not a piece of matter that crawled out of the sea. No. I am a product of the living God who created me. You are too. And because of that, you have worth in God's eyes. And I have worth. And that is so valuable. Let me, let me just briefly share a quote or two from some scientists and philosophers. I'm trying to do this without my glasses, but it may not be a good idea. I'm afraid if I put this on, I'll mess up the microphone. This is from a man by the name of Dr. Colin Patterson. He is senior paleontologist at the British Museum of Natural History. And this is a quote that he gave in a keynote address at the American Museum of Natural History. One of the reasons I started taking this anti-evolutionary view was it struck me. I had been working on this for 20 years, and there was not one thing I knew about it. That's quite a shock to learn that one can be so misled for so long. So for the last few weeks, I've tried putting a simple question to various people and groups of people. Question is, can you tell me anything you know about evolution and any one thing that is true? I tried that question on the geology staff at the Field Museum of Natural History, and the only answer I got, silence. I tried it on the members of the Evolutionary Morphology Seminar in the University of Chicago, a very prestigious body of evolutionists. And all I got there, too, silence. But eventually one person did speak up and he said, I know one thing, it ought not to be taught in the high school. Dar Here's another uh, quote from Philip Johnson. Darwinian theory is the creation myth of our culture. It's the officially sponsored, government-financed creation myth that the public is supposed to believe in and that creates the evolutionary scientists as the priesthood. So, we have the priesthood of naturalism, which has great cultural authority, and of course has to protect its mystery that gives it that authority. And that's why they are so vicious towards their critics. 
And I realize people are going to come along and say, well, I can find another scientist that says something differently. And that is true. But I just simply want to open your mind to that possibility that maybe we have been misled. Maybe we have been fed a lie. Well, moving on. Another evidence that I want to share with you this morning, an evidence of the truth, is the integrity of the Bible itself. The integrity of the Bible itself. It actually testifies to its own authority. If you look at 2 Timothy 3.16, the scripture says that all scripture is God-breathed and inspired. And then in 2 Peter 1.21, the things that were written by men of God who spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So the Bible testifies even of itself. But here's the thing. Did you know the Bible was a compilation of 40 different authors over a period of over 1,500 years? Think about that. You and I, if we're fortunate, will live to be 80. And yet, the compilation of these authors, 40 different authors separated over a period of 1,500 years. And the thing about it is they tell the beginning of the world and both the history and the future of mankind. And those witnesses all agree. Their works flow in such unbelievable unity in one direction. The Old Testament points to the New. The entire Bible, including the Old Testament, the Old and the New, describes to us who God is, what God is like, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will continue to do. And in such harmony, no other ancient literature in the world can boast the textual attestation of the New Testament. There are more than 5,000 manuscripts of the Bible cataloged today in various museums, educational institutions, churches, and the like. And here's the thing. Many of those documents go back in age to just a couple of generations from the time that they were written. And that may seem like a lot, but think about other ancient texts. One in particular, Homer's Iliad, has fewer than 650. And here's the difference. There's 800 years between the time that Homer wrote it and the age of the manuscripts that we have today. 800 years, far more than in the Bible, and far fewer. And yet, it's widely accepted as authentic, as, as are many other ancient pieces of literature. But I tell you, there is nothing that is more widely attested by documentation than the Bible. Sir Frederick Kenyon, the former director of the British Museum, said, in no other case is the interval in time between the composition of, a, composition of the book and the date of the earliest manuscript so short as it is in the New Testament. Another proof of the integrity of the Bible are its prophecies. In fact, this morning we've already shared the prophet Isaiah and how over 500 years before he predicted with such accuracy the coming of Jesus and what Jesus' mission would be. You're all familiar with texts such as Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And also in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Micah 5.2 talks about the place Jesus would be born, Bethlehem. Scripture says that Bethlehem, though small, out of you would come a leader of 
of all the nations. I, I could go on and on. Uh, a lot of the prophecies in the Old Testament became true later on in the Old Testament era. For example, the 11th chapter of Daniel talks about the coming and going of different dynasties and different kingdoms and so forth. And lo and behold, it occurred just exactly the same way. But someone has estimated that over 135 different prophecies in that chapter alone have been fulfilled. And then, of course, we know of all the prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. Gordy shared some of those. I better move along. My wife said, don't go too long, and I'm already going too long. <laughs> Another proof of the integrity of the scripture is the historical and archaeological record. There have been scores of archaeological digs that confirm the biblical record. While, according to archaeologist Nelson Blue, not even one has ever controverted a scriptural reference. Not one. Now, we would like to say that archaeology has uncovered everything and that it has provided proof for everything in the Bible. Can't say that. But it has proven a lot. A few years ago, there was a controversy about a people in the Bible known as the Hittites. And there were those who claimed that, see, that shows the Bible's wrong. There never were anybody like that. Well, since then, there have been other archaeological finds that have shown, yes, there really was people called the Hittites. And then, lastly, about the validation of the Bible, Jesus himself used the scriptures. I remember just a few weeks ago, uh, Terrence used the passage where Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. And I remember the devil said, why don't you turn this stone into bread? You're hungry. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, as the word says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So if Jesus used it, he sure attached authority to it. Well, moving on, a fourth evidence of what we believe. So far we've talked about the significance of what we believe. We've talked about the creation record. We've talked about the integrity of the Bible. Now, a thing that I want to refer to as a far superior morality. I had asked you earlier in the message, can you imagine our world if Jesus had never come? What if we didn't have the Ten Commandments? What if we didn't know the love of God? Jesus taught us what he called the greatest commandment, and that is you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, this is the greatest command, and in it all of the law and the prophets combined are fulfilled. So I would present to you this morning that the truth that we believe provides a far superior morality than any man could have ever devised. We've had great philosophers such as Socrates and Plato and Seneca, and even though they were, they were wise people, still there were inconsistencies and flaws. The biblical morality is, provides for us a perfect standard of what is right, of what desired hum, human conduct ought to be, and then practicality. The standard of right is based on the greatest command that I just read. Jesus summed it up in another way in another place. He uh, referred to it as the golden rule, that, or we refer to it as the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others do unto yourself. Those are, those are the right standards of the conduct that we believe in. The Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. There are ten of them, and I was going to try to name all of them so that you could test me. 
but I'm trying to move on as fast as I can. The morality of the Bible presents a perfect standard of conduct. This is where our society really gets into trouble. I have a whole lot of statistics. I'm not going to go to them today. But as a culture and as a society, we've lost our way. We have lost our way. We need to get back to the biblical standard. The creator of the universe, the one who created you and me, don't you think that he knows best how we ought to live? And then the standard of practicality. You know, we, we're really quick to say, well, nobody can keep all the laws. Nobody can do it. But I'm here to tell you that's not necessarily true. Obedience to God's standards is natural to one who has the right love for God and the right love for man. It's, our heart is changed. Our thinking is changed. Our minds have been renewed. So a far superior morality. There's so much more I could say about that. I'll move on. The last evidence that I wanted to present to you this morning, and I'll close with this, and that is the evidence of Christian experience itself. Christian experience and testimony. Jesus said, you must be born again. The Christian experience is a new birth, miraculously performed by the Spirit of God. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, all things are new, and the old has passed away. Romans 1.16, Paul wrote where he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power unto salvation to those who believe. So it is a spiritual birth, and it represents power in our lives. That's the Christian experience and testimony. There's a consciousness about it. Romans 12 says that we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In other words, allow God to change the way that we think. Because if he can change the way that we think, then we will change the way that we live. John 8.16 says, His Spirit bears witness with ours that we are the children of God. Gives us assurance. We have a consciousness of our Christian walk. Then there's this thing called death. Just as sure as we were born, we're all going to die. My question to you is this morning is how are you going to face that? How are you going to face that? Do you have the testimony in your heart that Jesus is going ahead and preparing a place for you? I do, and I hope you do too. As I was preparing this, I came upon a little article about the confession of a former atheist. And he makes four points. He says, number one, no one becomes an atheist without first turning away from God. In, in Romans 1, Paul goes into quite detail talking about there's no excuse for man because God has revealed himself in so many different ways. Point number two, atheists act like they have it all figured out. They don't. Point number three, deep down, an atheist is looking at the Christian to see if what he believes and lives is real. It puts an awful obligation on us, doesn't it? And then finally, the atheist cannot argue with a holy life. And I want to finish this morning by sharing with you a story from my own personal life. It's about a man named Nelson Fink. Dale Oldham, a renowned preacher and author in the Church of God, wrote a book called Giants Along My Path. And in it, he enumerates all of the special people that came along in his Christian walk and encouraged him and kept him going. And in a sense, Nelson Fink was one of my own personal giants. 
in my walk with the Lord. When I was six years old, we as a family picked up and moved from Anderson, Indiana to Napanee, Indiana, a place up north. I suppose it's famous today for Amish Acres. We attended the first church of God there where my dad and mom both got involved in the music program there. My dad leading the singing, my mom the beginning of a fabulous and long service of playing the organ and the piano in church. There was a man there in that congregation named Nelson Fink. He was a huge man. Now, isn't that ironic, me standing here <laughs> talking about a huge man? <laughs> a huge man, but he had a soft heart. And I would say that he was somewhere around 65 or 70 years old. He was a faithful servant. He loved people. And more than that, he loved children. Now, I was six years old when we moved there. Joel, I don't know if you remember any of that at all. You would have been pretty young. But Nelson was a carpenter by trade, and because of that, he immediately became real close to my dad. Because before we moved to Napanee, my dad had just previously been in the residential construction business himself. And so he and Nelson really hit it off. And every time there was a project in or around the church, Dad and Nelson were the first ones to volunteer, it seems like, and they enjoyed working together. I think my dad loved that man, and that man loved my dad and our family. Now, unfortunately for Nelson, the first 50 years of his life, he lived without Jesus Christ. He didn't know the Lord. And during that time, he had a wife and children, and through the years, his vulgarity, his profanity, his poor stewardship as a husband and a father, it left its scars and its, and its wounds. And his family left him. I don't know all the details, but I heard him talk about it. And by the time that Nelson met the Lord, his family was gone. Somewhere along the line, he remarried a woman by the name of Clara. But I remember his testimonies on Wednesday night where he shared that. And tears would come to his eyes as he would talk about how he had lost his family. And he would do anything, anything, to have that time back and to teach them and to rear them the right way. Another thing about Nelson, he used to come up to me or I to him after church. And he would stand up straight and tall and he would throw his chest out and he would say, hit me as hard as you can. Hit me. And I was reluctant to do it. <laughs> I, was, I was not a particularly aggressive child. I don't know, mom may differ with that, but. I wound up, and I swung, and I hit him in the chest, and of course, my hand just bounced off. And I'll never forget that huge grin from ear to ear that he had. He thought that was the greatest thing. Nelson and Clara invited us out to the house several times. Now, get this. This is a family of seven, and children from, I don't know, from eight to ten on down. And most likely they had things that are breakable, just like we all do. Uh, they probably had good furniture and things. I don't remember all the details. But I remember they had us at their house several times where we would have an unbelievable uh, dinner. And on the menu were waffles and pancakes and sausage, which I think Nelson made himself or somebody else made it for him. And then whipped cottage cheese. Have you ever heard of that? Whipped cottage cheese. I don't know if I've ever had any since, but I remember it very well. Well, what I want to get down to here this morning is one Easter Sunday, <clears throat> our pastor, Brother Fields, asked Nelson, he said, Nelson, would you be willing 
to help me with an illustration during the Easter message. <laughs> of course, Nelson, the way he was, well, of course, I'd be glad to. They drug this huge wooden cross up on the pulpit. Great big spikes, nails, this long, where Jesus' hands and his feet would have been. And at the proper cue, Nelson was to take his hammer and to hammer those nails. Wham! 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 And before long, the tears welled up in his eyes, and he started crying like a baby. That big, huge man, when he came to the realization of what Jesus did for him, he cried so hard he couldn't even see the nails to hammer them. I tell you this morning, if there is an evidence about what we believe, Nelson was an evidence. I remember. It was over 50 years ago, and I remember. I remember with just tremendous memories. I tell you this morning, there's no greater miracle than the miracle of a changed life. So this morning as we close, and Isaac is coming, I realize this wasn't the most exhaustive message that I could have prepared. There are so many of the different items we could have gone off on a different tangent. But my intent this morning is I want to encourage you and I want to instill in you that the gospel of Jesus Christ that we believe, it's real and it's powerful and it's true and it's genuine and there's a reason that we can believe it. It's not myth. It's not superstition. But we have credible evidence for what has been passed down to us. Second Timothy says, For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. The invitation always remains. Jesus, picture him standing at your heart's door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and have fellowship with him and he with me. If you haven't made that decision, it would be a great day to do.